Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Diaro. Thank you, Darlene. For our guest today, please welcome Stanley Seidowitz, principal of Stanley Seidowitz Natoma Architects Incorporated a San Francisco-based firm in practice for more than 30 years. They have quite an accomplished body of completed work, including interior, single-family homes, large-scale urban projects, and institutional buildings. Common to all their work is a commitment to beautiful, functional, and memorable places, striving for the highest design qualities to create the most elevating spaces with immaculate attention to materials and details. For more information... Feel free to visit www.saitowitz.com. That's www.saitowitz.com. That's saitowitz.com. Hello, Stanley. We're honored and excited to have you on the Modern Architect Show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, we're honored. Thank you. Stanley, can you share with us some of your early inspirations as to you know why why you are who you are and how you kind of arrived there as early as you can recall. You know, actually, even before I can remember, I was interested in architecture. And the reason I know this is that my mother always tells me that when I was a small child, whenever I went to a birthday party or to play with friends, when I came home, Instead of talking about the cake or the the games that we played, I used to describe the house. <laughs> and really? she always um, reminds me of that. So, you know, the interest <laughs> is very, very sort of primary. And the conscious kind of knowledge about architecture was actually when I was eight or nine, a girl in my class's father was an architect and we were friends and I went to their house uh-huh. and they had a beautiful house <laughs> with big sliding glass doors and it just sort of bled out into the garden. And it was, uh, we lived in a, a house that was a post-war house, but it was quite a suburban type of building. Okay. And this was modern architecture. And I befriended her um, so that I could uh, visit her and, and go and sort of experience this wonderful house that they had. So, oh, my um, goodness. You know, and then um, just I, I just always thought about being an architect. I remember my brothers being quite confused about careers and having to go for guidance and things like that. There was never a question for me about what I was going to do. So, you know, I just always knew that I was going to be an architect. I remember even when I was 13 for my bar mitzvah, I got gift vouchers for a bookstore in Johannesburg where I grew up. And I went and got architecture books, which I still have oh, actually my, in my library. Bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah money, you, yeah, you, I bought books <laughs> on architecture. Oh, that's beautiful. 
Wow, so it's really more of a calling than it was a vocation. Or uh, It might just be a coincidence, but that's the truth, that it, it was always there for me. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm still sort of totally engaged and committed, and I still love it. I've never thought about anything else. I honestly don't have anything <laughs> else that I'm interested in. <laughs> really? really? That's beautiful, Stanley. That's, that's almost um, <laughs> divine. To Possibly. Be, yeah, r- really, because – so are you looking at your world that you – every day and seeing what could be either improved or what you would do with it? Am, am I reaching f- by saying that? You know, honestly, I, I see the whole world through architecture, but I see architecture as a way to actually – Repair pieces of the world one at a time, you know, like repair pieces of tikkun olam, tikkun olam, yeah, like the idea that you know each time you're given an opportunity on a site, which might be a little corner here or a little slot between two buildings there, or maybe some you know bigger piece of land. It's always about how you take that and try to make that piece of the world more complete and, you know, more beautiful than when you started. Yes. So were you also seeing that as a young child, just on your way to school? I don't know if you took a bus or you walked, but were you seeing, were, were you seeing your community in the same way you are now? Or are you just described? You know, I grew up in the new post-war suburb of Johannesburg, and we were one of the sort of earlier houses and there were lots of empty lots that were getting built while I was growing up. So part of my experience as a child was also always watching buildings being built and going after the contractors had left and sort of smelling the mortar and the sawdust and and walking around and watching these buildings as they developed. So I always, you know, was sort of engaged in this um, building of of a city, let's say. Because, you know, there were like we, we lived in what was sort of felt, really. It was the high felt. And, you know, and this is where these houses were being built and trees were getting planted. And, you know, it's a really beautiful city, Johannesburg. Most people don't actually know that. They think Cape Town's beautiful, but really Johannesburg, Johannesburg okay. is is the place um, in South Africa. And, you know, it's it's a complete garden. It was really just quite barren sort of grassland felt. But when you look at it now, it's absolutely covered with trees. And it's just, you know, all man-made, like, landscape. Yes. So it's it's quite a fantastic city. Yeah, so man-made. So there isn't is there not a space that you feel that you can improve upon or repair? Really? No, no, I think everything can be better. But there are some places that are almost perfect. Like when I come to the old part of Stanford, oh, sh- I yeah. feel this is paradise, oh, you know. Yeah. This even though I'm a modernist and, you know, I don't always appreciate historic buildings as as much as I do modern buildings. I mean, when you come to a complete world like Stanford and it's just sort of like so beautifully integrated and consistently sort of complete. I mean, I just, I love this place. And, you know, it's a, a real contrast for me because, you know, I spend most of my life at Berkeley, at the UC Berkeley uh-huh. campus. And I mean, the architecture of Berkeley is not really very special. It's a beautiful campus because, again, it's a garden Mm -hmm. and it has the creek that runs through. But, I mean, the the sort of grandeur and the kind of aspiration of, you know, building something like the Stanford campus is very inspiring for me. Really? Even today? Even today. And even when I fly over it and look out of the plane window, I just look and I'm awed by such, you know, like a a sort of amazing human construct and effort. Yeah. it does, so, what is it? What is it like? Obviously, you're describing kind of what it does for you. But does it does it also carry over in your work when you when you see this? Even today, is it? Do you think of projects or, or work that you're doing now that you go, ah? Oh. You know, I always want to make projects that lift people up and make them feel like more, you know, possibility. And and this is what I think the campus here does. It just it immediately just 
gives you like aspiration, like, you know, that things could be much more beautiful and better and that you can actually like make a better world. And I mean, it's proof because look what's come out of Stanford. Yes, that you just hit on something. You, it's proof. So if we took land and said, Stanley, we have 200, 300 acres and it's just barren land. We want to make it a really a university that uh, people will be proud to attend one, two, three hundred years from today. Could you take that, or would you want to take on that task? Oh, I would love to do something like that. And you know, I think the way I would begin would be the way that historically cities were made, which is that you would start with a kind of infrastructure, like lay out a kind of plan for a. F- for, for a future that could be made in parts. You don't have to, I mean, it doesn't have to be complete. You know, like here there were the quad and palm drive. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were pieces that then got filled in around. So you have to build like the infrastructure and the opportunity for a future. But you would you love You can't a- control the whole future right now. Aha, uh-huh. touch on that a little bit. I'm interested. You can't control the future, all of the future right now. But I think you can point towards the kinds of opportunities that are there. You know, I mean, in my work, I'm, I've always been very interested in both my own expression as an architect, but also about giving opportunities to the people who occupy my work. And in a way, you know, one of the things that has become in the kind of 90s and, you know, 80s and 90s, the kind of idea about signature architecture that architects would like present themselves through their work. What my interest focuses on is rather how my work could be an instrument and a kind of apparatus for other people also to express themselves so that it's not about, you know, like making a complete and finite representation of yourself. It's about a tool for others to express themselves. Yeah, so it sounds as if you're 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 designing from the human experience outward. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of what I do is actually about housing, like about places for people to live. And so especially in doing urban multifamily type of housing where you don't know the occupant, you know, it's about providing a kind of framework for them to be able to express themselves through the way they inhabit the space. So by the way they furnish color, even by the way they open and close windows and doors, slide walls, you know, that you give them kind of opportunities to um, be freer in space rather than, you know, the old kind of way of building like very confined and programmed kind of plans of houses where, you know, there would be this room for this, that room for uh-huh. that, and so on. I mean, it's about a field rather than a form. A field rather than a form. Share with us that, that type of a, your description of that. Okay, so, you know, the idea of a field is that it's kind of got certain measure, but it doesn't have every bit of information about how you have to approach it. Whereas a form is a finished object. You know, it's done. This is it. So, you know, I think modern architecture really was about this. And, you know, now mid-century modern architecture has become very kind of part of the language and the the culture of architecture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, the... The idea of space and continuity is, and the connection between inside and outside, between room and room, is more important than the sort of finite room itself. Okay. And you also said, be freer in space. I've never heard of that phrase. Be freer in space. Share with us. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, like a monument and a kind of scaffold, you know, where a scaffold you can kind of approach and dress up and undress. A monument is finished. The message is there. That's it. 
So it's, again, I think the difference between like an object and an instrument. Like an instrument is a thing that facilitates. Okay. Whereas an object is finite, you know, that's it. It's a sculpture or it could be beautiful or not, but you can't necessarily affect it. Whereas an instrument is something that helps you to change the world. Outstanding. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Smoon concludes its 24th season of Contemporary American Ballet with Dance Series 2, featuring the world premiere of Val Canaparoli's If I Were a Sushi Roll. Also on the bill is Oasis, Helen Pickett's Ode to Water set to an original score by House of Cards composer Jeff Beale and Amy Seward's Visually Driven Falling Up. Dance Series 2 will tour the Bay Area and Carmel from April 20th through June 2nd. For more information, visit smoonballet.org. That's S-M-U-I-N ballet.org. We're talking today with Stanley Seidowitz, principal of Stanley Seidowitz Natoma Architects Incorporated, a San Francisco-based firm in practice for more than 30 years. For more information, you can visit www.seidowitz.com. That's www.s-a-i-t-o-w. ITZ.com. Stanley, what recent projects have you done or are doing, if you're at liberty to share with us? You know, we do a broad range of things, and I very much like the fact that we do. And, you know, these are from big urban projects, like high-rise buildings, which we have several of that we're working in in Los Angeles, to single-family houses and infills and quite small interiors even. So I love the sort of breadth of being able to do these different projects. You know, some of the things that I'm very excited with at the moment, you know, we've we've done a fair amount of institutional work like museums and and especially synagogues. And last year, we finished a project in Philadelphia for Drexel University, which is in this quite old town, you know, which has a very beautiful and consistent kind of historic quality to it. And I was given this site in the midst of traditional Philadelphia to build a new building. You know, when when I was talking before about my interests, um, I was talking about the sort of interiors and the experience of a user or someone who inhabits the space. But I'm the thing that I like to talk about as well is the exterior and how the responsibility that I see of the exteriors of buildings is to continue the process of building cities, which are you know, these historic entities that have long kind of history that is cumulative. And because of the kind of climate and geography, each city has a unique quality just because of where, it, you know, this globe and this spot on the globe has a particular relationship to the sun and the winds. And I mean, this creates a climate and out of the response and also a, a kind of geography like the earth and the, the plants and everything. So, you know, architecture is kind of in a way like that. So, that's the reason why Paris is different from London or Shanghai. It's because of the kind of geography. And so, like, when I talk about outsides, I feel like my work's really focused on the unique qualities of each city. So when I work in Los Angeles or Vancouver or Cleveland or San Diego or, you know, wherever it is, Boston, I'm really interested in the difference that each of those cities has and how to take that difference and sort of like reinvigorate it in a contemporary way. So it all starts with my hometown, which is San Francisco, which is one of the most beautiful cities with one of the most kind of unique and memorable historic fabrics. And, you know, part of the 
inspiration for my work is to try to find ways to take those characteristics that are so particular, this very fine, almost Victorian-like delicacy, you know, the hills with this kind of cartography of architecture that is like a mat that just sort of wraps over the ground. That's and so then, lovely how you said that. And, and to find ways to build modern buildings that still like enjoy and, and bring to light those characteristics for today. And what I, what I find like really sad about what's happening to cities now is that so much of the work that's being built in every city is so much like the work in every other city. There's this global generic kind of architecture, which, you know, like if you look at many of the new buildings in San Francisco, depending on their scale, you know, they're either these like cheap glass curtain walls, which are reflective of nothing and sort of have no particular quality. And you could find them, you know, equally in Chandao or or Dubai or, you know, in any city anywhere, which have nothing to do with sort of characteristics of the uniqueness of the place. And so my interest in all of the work, and I'm I'm lucky because I'm able to work in these different cities and like work with the different characteristics of cities is always to try to both accept the contemporary and the technology and, you know, our way of making, but also to respect the kind of history and uniqueness of each city. Excellent. I have a strong opinion, and I base it with a number of case studies where I feel that architects need to be in a prominent or mayoral position of cities because of their unique the unique DNA, the way they see the world, and how it would create a better city, a community, and a life. What's your, uh, what is your take on my very strong opinion of that they need to be at the forefront rather than uh, all the bureaucracy making the decisions for the city? You know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that the architect themselves have to be the spearhead, but I think they need the support. I mean, Florence was built with the kind of papal indulgence of art and, you know, the, the, the appreciation of the role of art. Unfortunately, there's not that kind of mentality amongst most of the people who sponsor building today. Just for example, in San Francisco, about almost 80% of the fabric of the city is actually residential. And the building of residences is typically in the hands of developers, you know, Mm -hmm. people who have found ways to manage large amounts of capital and, you know, to actually put together ways to build big pieces of city. And a lot of those people's goals are really driven more by profit than by the contribution that they're making to the legacy of the city. But at the same time, I I should say that, you know, I think good and bad architecture both cost money and both involve a lot of hard work. So, you know, I don't blame the sponsors of architecture alone for the decline in the sort of quality and beauty of our cities. I mean, I think part of it is also that the kind of community of architects maybe haven't been as creative as they were or could be. And, you know, but this, it's, it's a very complex process. I mean, in, you know, I've been working for 40 years and, um, Excellent. my first buildings, one of the first buildings that I built before I even came to the United States, I was building in South Africa and I, I built a house which is now, you know, it's quite a well-known house. It's been put on the register of historic buildings outside Johannesburg. And it was built with about 20 sheets of drawing. Um, last year, I finished a house 20 in, sheets? in Atherton. Oh. And it's got about 200 <laughs> sheets of drawing. So, you know, just the the process and the quality of the house 
that I built in South <laughs> Africa 40 years ago, in terms of its execution, is not crude or less refined. It's just that the process is so different. In those days, like the team all contributed, like the contractor helped to refine and make things. You know, it was just working with a sort of collaborative kind of process, which these days, because of the litigious nature and the sort of complexity of the bureaucracies that we work under, everyone is doing so much extra work to defend and protect. And, and you know, so, I mean, it's become quite a, you know, there are many, mm. many factors that I think have caused this. I mean, you know, like people always tell you, oh, the computer, you know, it's made, it's made a tremendous difference to the way that we work, but it hasn't simplified. It's actually, you know, a computer is actually a way to generate more paperwork and in a way like explode the kind of, um, it's true. Yeah. you know, the bureaucracy. So, you know, we can just churn out details now. And now every contractor wants every single thing detailed. You know, they'll never bid or like take on anything without having it drawn. Whereas in the old days, contractors knew their craft and were willing to kind of work towards making a beautiful building. You know, I think the process has become incredibly kind of just another way to explain how this has developed. These days, you know, to get a building entitled and through the actual permitting process typically takes two or three times as long as it actually takes to build the building itself. The entitlement and just the authorization is three times as much as the actual realization. And that's a weird condition that we've created for ourselves. That's tremendous. That's too much. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. The Peninsula Humane Society and SPCA invite you to check out their wide variety of adoptable dogs, cats, birds, bunnies, and reptiles. All adoptions are now handled at the Tom and Annette Lantos Center for Compassion, which is located at 1450 Rollins Road in Burlingame. Visit PeninsulaHumaneSociety.org for photos and write-ups about these adoptable animals. Or call the Peninsula Humane Society and SPCA at 650-340-7022 for the Peninsula Humane Society and SPCA. We're talking today with Stanley Sedowitz, principal of Stanley Sedowitz Natoma Architects Incorporated, a San Francisco-based firm in practice for more than 30 years. For more information, feel free to visit www.sedowitz.com. That's www.s-a-i-t-o-w-i-t-z.com. Stanley, I want to go back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is repair the world. So there's a lot of bureaucracy now. It takes two to three times longer than it did, what, even 10, 10 years ago, you think? Yeah. Okay. How can that also be a part of the process to repair in your, your experience or opinion, if you don't mind sharing? You know, there's many layers of checks and balances that are involved in the entitlement. And you would think that the result would be a better project, but I'm not convinced that it always does produce higher quality. I mean, there's the old story about the camel, you know, that was uh, the result of a design by committee. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and um, <laughs> you know, as opposed to the horse, uh, <laughs> which is a, an object of beauty and and so I think often in this sort of attenuated process, there's a sort of constant set of compromises that might actually result in a less poignant solution to a problem and a less beautiful object ultimately. The public nature of our work, because we are building cities and cities belong to the citizens. And, 
you know, nowadays, the citizens have also claimed their right to uh, sort of be authors of of uh, architecture. And many of them, quite frankly, don't have the breadth of experience. Any, you know, most. <laughs> you know, it would be like, um, you know, you, you have a pain in your, in your chest and, you know, you go to the this heart specialist and then tell them how to um, exactly. cure yourself. <laughs> and I think it's kind of forgotten. Architecture is a field of knowledge. You know, there is actually this wonderful legacy of enormous depth and history of things that that architects are actually subject to learn and, you know, that that gives them a leg up about making decisions about uh, these kinds of things, which, which in a way the process these days is not necessarily accepted. Yeah. How can we, say, building the design review boards, how can they actually unlearn that process that they that have encumbered? You know, the different design review groups sure. that I've encountered. And, for example, in some of the neighborhoods of San Francisco, there's a conscious effort to have design professionals as part of the design review boards who actually have an understanding about the nature of these decisions and the impact and interrelation of things. I think that's a really, really great way for these boards to work. But then at the same time, other cities and neighborhoods purposely want to have non-professionals that why so do you think purpose because they believe in a kind of conspiracy of you know they want to mediocratize they want things to be at a common kind of level they don't want the presence of expertise or specialty <laughs> really no it it's, sounds preposterous i know it does sound preposterous but for example on the san francisco planning commission which i think actually is an amazing group of people you know there's there's right now only one of seven who's actually a design professional and in in many of the small cities around the bay area there're probably none they're land use lawyers and I mean there's all kinds of experts in the environment, but very few who actually have design background and knowledge. Do you think that hinders? I mean I think we my experience is when there's been like a neighborhood association with architects that appreciate the and understand the breadth and knowledge that architecture contains and what problems architecture can solve and you know what it can't solve as well. You know, I think the quality of work is better. Hayes Valley, for example, there's a really good Hayes Valley Neighborhood Association that for a long time has had really interesting design professional input on the neighborhood board. And I mean, if you look at the buildings in Hayes Valley, (laughs) you know, they reflect a better quality. Same with dog patch, you know, there's people there. So I, I, I'm being too specific now, but I do think, you know, I do think the, um, I would say the same would be true about, you know, the people who work in the city and, and review plans and so on, that the more they know about their field, because for example, the planning department make a lot of architectural decisions, but planners aren't necessarily the same as architects. You know, they learn about infrastructure and, you know, sort of how cities work and the financial and uh, economic kind of equations that produce culture of cities, but they don't necessarily know about design. But often they're making calls about design, like the base should be more articulated or the top's too plain or, you know, things like that. What's your experience, Stanley, when you see um, people step back and look at um, your work? Have you experienced it directly? Well, there's, you know, I I, I experience it through the blogs and, um, (laughs) you know, know, people are fearless about their uh, ability to judge on blogs and because there's no um, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's, no there's actually no repercussion or yeah. responsibility they say a lot so yeah <laughs> I do I do um, people call my buildings refrigerators or washing oh. machines or they have you know, oh they have yeah oh. 
You know, honestly, um, I do want to make things that that people love, you know, that are worthy of being loved. But, you know, people judge things very quickly, visually, I mean, with their eyes, and there's no going back. So if they've grown up with the limits of a set of experiences where they've never actually encountered, say, what modern architecture can be, which in the Bay Area, it's possible that you've never seen a modern (laughs) building. (laughs) So, you know, people judge things by their, their own experience and knowledge, and sometimes it's okay. quite limited. Yeah, the, the project in Philadelphia that you did. How what was what inspired that building? Because I was taken aback in, in before our interview when I saw where you know I don't know if that's where it came from. Share with us how. Well, you know, Drexel is yeah. partially in an old brick, single detached house neighborhood, and my site was a sort of missing tooth in this zone. And the brick in Philadelphia and, you know, around Drexel is very beautiful. It's this red, very dense brick. And there's also a tradition of really, really intricate mm. brick uh, weaving, let's say. Okay. like, And, you know, the, the idea of um, the project was obviously to build something new on the site, but something that also had a sense of connection and belonging. So very immediately I decided I was going to make the building out of brick. And, you know, then I started thinking about the tradition that this building represents. And it's basically a Hillel house, which is a sort of Jewish uh, student religious organization. And, you know, the first, the sort of fountainhead of Jewish architecture is actually the tabernacle, which was this mobile tent structure, which was carried around in the desert. It was designed by Moses, who was quite an amazing guy, because he also, you know, Moses did the Torah, made the Torah, and he also designed the first sort of religious structure for the Jews. And um, and I've always been quite interested in that. And the beautiful thing about the tabernacle is that it was a fabric structure. It was made with, you know, this kind of curtain that mm-hmm. wrapped. And, you know, one of the my wonderful teachers who was a rabbi that I worked with when I built Beth Shalom in San Francisco, he explained... Rabbi Lou. Rabbi Lou. Oh, yes. A blessed memory. So he explained to me that the... The meaning of the tabernacle was really that it was about an object to connect. Everything that Moses said in the um, description of the building was about connection. And so the building was really a metaphor for the community that it brought together around it and wrapped in fabric. So anyway, these were the sort of ideas that I was playing with and with Philadelphia. And, you know, one of the wonderful things about Judaism, it doesn't have too many, um, like, icons or objects. but Uh, Too many. Any. (laughs) Any, really. But there's the the fabric shawl that we pray with, that we wrap ourselves Uh in. And I wanted to make this brick fabric that was like a talus that would, in a way, be the thing that, bound the community of these young Jewish students that are have left home and are, you know, looking for a way to, like, find themselves in, in a new world. And so anyway, so the idea was that the brick became fabric and it was woven and threaded as the sort of wrapping of this community of young Jewish students. And it, it's a very strange building, actually, because, you know, there's, there's three synagogues in this little building, one Reform, one Orthodox, and one Conservative. And each of them, the building's designed on four levels. The basement is the sort of service level where the kitchens are. The ground street level is the community level. The next level above that is the learning level. And then the top is the level of prayer, the worship level. And it's um, it's like the Sabbath le- level. It's like the white tablecloths come out. You know, it's that special yeah. place. And on that level, there are these three 
different synagogues. But I was very <sighs> unnerved by the idea of really you different were. communities. Yeah. So the thing that I made right in the middle is an outdoor courtyard on the roof, on that roof level, where all these three synagogues open out into this shared sort of space, which is actually like a square with a circle cut in the square, which is, which is the, focused uh, on the sky, which, yeah. which is sort of the bringing together and the origin of the synagogue in a way, which was the square and the circle, you know, the dome yeah. on the square. So, you know, I tried to bring a lot of this. I mean, it's a way to give kind of direction and form to uh, these things out of history and the tradition. But, you know, if you looked at the building, it's quite a modern building, you know. It's contemporary and, you know, you walk in and there's a, a fireplace. So it's almost like coming home for the kids. And, and you know, and and then it's it's just a, quite a pleasant place to be in. Absolutely. And I was only, I'm fortunate to see it just on your, uh, on your, on your website. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU 90.1 FM, Stanford. The Youth Movement Against Alzheimer's promotes awareness and understanding of Alzheimer's disease by providing high school and college-age students with opportunities for volunteering, clinical research, and fundraising with the ultimate goal of spreading compassion and empathy for those afflicted with the disease and encouraging advocacy to do everything possible to ultimately find a cure. If you'd like to donate, visit theyouthmovement.org for the Youth Movement Against Alzheimer's. We're talking today with Stanley Seidowitz, principal of Stanley Seidowitz Natoma Architects Incorporated, a San Francisco base firm in practice for more than 30 years. For more information, you're free to visit www.saitowitz.com. That's www.saitowitz.com. Stanley, looking at your work, it looks like every piece of your work has meaning to it. Is that by your design, the your client's design, both? It, just, it has a lot of uh, life to it, even though it's a, it's a static building. You know, I, I've had the fortune of working with fantastic people, you know, really great clients. And I, I always feel like the work is a complete collaboration, not only with my clients, but, you know, with everyone that participates, which is a huge number of people that part of the operation of building a building. You know, in terms of meaning, I've always wanted to speak to everybody. You know, I've, I've wanted to speak the most broad language that is possible, that is beyond language. You know, it's about direct communication. So it's about the most simple things like thick and thin, hot and cold, <laughs> heavy and light. You know, that, I mean, everyone can kind of understand. And so, the history of architecture, you know, classical architecture, which was Eurocentric and where neoclassicism evolved. And, you know, I've tried, I mean, modernism actually tried to supersede that with abstraction. But abstraction doesn't mean meaninglessness. Mm. It just means a more open-ended kind of way of communicating. You know, the experience that really taught me about meaning and communication was um, years ago when I was living in South Africa. There was a, a man who worked in our house who was an African man. He was a witch doctor. He was a very strange and, oh, really? and amazing really? guy. Official witch doctor. But, you know, one, one day I was um, <laughs> looking at a book of Rene Magritte, and, you know, Magritte painted with the most, like, figurative and abstract language where an apple would replace the head of a person. And I paged through this book with Abiot, this guy that used to work for us, and he got everything about Magritte's work, you know, because it was about the everyday and the completely kind of direct. And it, the magic and of surrealism 
communicated to him. And there was nothing elite or, or kind of um, unique about the language. It was just everyday things that were like turned upside down and made these statements. And that was an amazing moment in my life when I realized how one could communicate to everybody. So, you know, if you use direct columns, then people from Asia don't have a direct way to know the legacy of that. So it's about finding through abstraction this way of directly communicating to the mind and the body, creating experience. Sounds very spiritual. Well, is it? No, you know, I'm a pragmatist. I'm really, I'm really interested in like being, you know, like realizing things and making things real. But obviously there's many choices when you do that. And, you know, my choices are always about um, how to like optimize, get the most for the least, find ways to make magic with, you know, like the rubbing of sticks that create (laughs) fire. You know, and that's sort of what I try to do, you know, just all the time. That's I'm just trying to, like, make magic, you know, but make magic with whatever's at hand, a piece of string, a brick, you know, how you everything that you touch can become more than itself. Interesting that you said you're trying to make magic, but yet you're a pragmatist. Those are opposite. And that's the challenge. Like, how do you bring, like, the two ends that are so far apart right next to each other to bounce with each other and dance with each other and become one dance with each other not even not 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 be agitated with each other but actually dance yeah even though they're completely different uh, elements i mean that's that's what i think's possible with the work that we do yes how how are people's um I know I asked this a bit earlier, but what if you revisited a site just to get a general feel for people and what they may or may not be looking at or experiencing? You know, I do. I do have opportunities to go back to my buildings and see how people live and and respond to them. And I mean, I get mixed um, feelings, but you know, I mean. I finished a building in Dogpatch a few years ago, and I went recently to visit someone in the building. And I was so moved by the way they lived in the building because they lived in the most delicate way with the most, the lightest, you know, like they had a couch, a television, a table, um, some chairs. I mean, you know, like the, the, the idea of sort of inhabiting like greenness, you know, like gre- being green, okay. like, like getting rid of everything, mm-hmm. you know, and often it's kind of like being green is sort of a slightly messianic thing, but there's a way to, <laughs> there's a way to live lightly and, and touch lightly and all of that. And I mean, when, when I saw it, I was so moved because they just were inhabiting the city and the space in a completely new way for me. I mean, almost like where ownership was replaced by use. Like, you know, your grandmother had to own things to kind of um, create her, like, sense of her place in the world. Like, you know, my grandmother brought all her candlesticks and samovars. And, I mean, those were – but these people had nothing like that. There was no need for them to – um, have objects which kind of supported their reality. They just had things to use, you know. And, I mean, it's sort of like the difference between owning a car and using Lyft or Uber, you know. It's it's sort of the the shift that I think is one of the most hopeful things going on. Uh, we're, we're from ownership, we're interested in use and, you know, where we, we don't need possessions anymore. We just need the convenience of being able to do what we need to do. And, you know, I love a lot of the things that are going on now, like we live, you know, which is this sort of thing about us instead of me and, you know, about sharing like in community and like my interest in the city and, you know, in my work and in doing multifamily housing is to find ways to 
make these new kinds of spaces that are going to be for this better city, which is going to be more about us than me. I like that. More about us than me. There's a, a great saying. I know it's from China. I don't know if it was Confucius or someone else who had said it, but I'd love to hear your take on it. It goes uh, something like this. A space does not honor a person. A person honors a space. What's your thoughts on that? I think that's a beautiful idea about how we are in the world. And, you know, that sense of honor instead of possession is what I think is wonderful about, like, how we could improve the world now. Excellent. Stanley, it's been an honor and privilege to have you here. Thank you very much for coming. We hope you consider coming back again soon. There's so many other questions um, we're not answered, but love to have you back if you if you'd be. Uh, I would I would love to. Thank you. And you know, there's so much to talk about that I think we've only just scraped a few little edges of things. <laughs> Thank you very much, Stanley. And let's scrape a few more edges the next time. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Stanley Seidowitz, principal of Stanley Seidowitz Natoma Architects Incorporated, a San Francisco-based firm in practice for more than 30 years. They've uh, accomplished a body of completed work, including interior, single-family homes, large-scale urban projects, and institutional buildings. Common to all their work is a commitment to a beautiful, functional, and memorable place, striving for the highest design qualities to create the most elevated spaces with immediate attention to materials and details. For more information, feel free to visit www.sitewitz.com. That's www.sitewitz.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Darlene Franklin, chief engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Caleb B. Smith. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Diaro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Stanford.edu.